Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Conkey Ride Home for Thursday, July 1st, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. This week has proven we need air conditioners more than ever, but we also need them to be better than ever. Here are some of the innovations being considered. Plus, one of the women from the secret Mercury 13 program at 1960s NASA is finally getting the chance to go to space this month. And the UAE's Hope Orbiter on Mars has picked up something scientists have never before been able to capture on the Red Planet. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. The Pacific Northwest here in the U.S. blasted through their all-time heat records this week, records that now exceed those of Las Vegas and Houston. Power cables for the streetcars in Portland literally melted on Sunday. The cause for all that heat in the region was because of a heat dome, something that CBS News meteorologist Jeff Berardelli called a 1,000-year event, or at least it was, last century. Now, it's just another thing that's likely to be repeated more often. The heat already kills at least 600 people, but probably closer to 1,500 every year in America, according to The Atlantic. And most of them don't have air conditioning. The need for some type of cooling system in homes, especially in locations where they weren't previously needed, is becoming abundantly clear. Scientific American says that by 2050, researchers expect the number of air conditioners around the world to quadruple to 4.5 billion and be as ubiquitous as cell phones. But air conditioners as they presently exist are not the answer. Yes, the climate crisis is making us need them more, but air conditioners are also making the climate crisis worse. The technology is long overdue for an upgrade. Quoting Scientific American, The basic cooling technology behind air conditioning and refrigerators hasn't changed significantly since 1902, when a young American engineer named Willis Carrier devised the first air conditioner to solve a humidity problem for a printing company in New York City. 
It's known as the vapor compression cycle, explains Kark Bullard, a mechanical engineer and professor emeritus at the University of Illinois. In its most stripped-down form, it consists of two metal coils, one located inside the space to be cooled and one outside. A liquid refrigerant circulates through the coils, alternately evaporating and condensing under varying pressure. As the refrigerant vaporizes, it gets cold and chills the metal coil inside the room. When it reaches the outdoor coil, the refrigerant condenses, ejecting heat into the air before beginning the next cycle. Meanwhile, a fan blows over the cold metal coil, cooling the air and removing humidity as water condenses on the coil like droplets on a cold beer glass, Bullard says, end quote. There are a number of innovations that can be made and which scientists have been trying to crack for years. Most revolve around reducing the amount of energy used to power the units or replacing the hydrofluorocarbon or HFC refrigerants used in most air conditioners. Quoting again, roughly a thousand to three thousand times more potent than CO2 as a greenhouse gas, these refrigerants slowly leak into the atmosphere and escape when air conditioners are destroyed. End quote. But finding a replacement that isn't flammable, toxic, or too viscous, and has the correct boiling point and won't warm the planet is tough. One promising prospect is the Global Cooling Prize, a competition sponsored by the Indian Department of Science and Technology, 24 other nations, the Rocky Mountain Institute, and Richard Branson. The point of the prize is to accelerate the development of air conditioners that use less energy or better coolants. They also can't cost too much when rolled out and be effective enough to keep someone cool in an apartment in Delhi, India. One startup that received funding as a finalist is called Barocal, and their design has gotten rid of HFCs altogether. They instead use, quoting Scientific American, a new solid refrigerant made from organic crystals. Cheap and non-toxic, the crystals release and absorb heat under pressure as they change volume, explains founder and materials scientist Xavier Moya. A typical air conditioning compressor can easily produce the lowest pressure needed, 70 bars or atmospheres, but higher pressures may be needed. The air conditioner's efficiency will depend on how the team applies the pressure to the crystals. End quote. Another startup is focused on the issue of dehumidification with regards to energy efficiency. Quoting again, Transira, a startup at MIT, for example, is collaborating with Qingdao Hair Air Conditioner Gencourt Limited to build a device that removes water molecules from the air using a new highly porous material called a metal organic framework. Nanoscale pores in the material act like a molecular sponge, removing water droplets from the air more efficiently than any other known material. The team plans to dry out the sponge using waste heat from the air conditioner's compressor, allowing it to be used over and over. If that sponge can work with existing units and doesn't need frequent replacement, it could pull ahead in the competition, end quote. But moving away from the global cooling prize, there are other contenders that focus on solutions beyond air conditioning units. And I don't just mean things like better building insulation, although we need solutions like that too. While Willis Carrier might have been the one to create the technology we still use in air conditioners, he was far from the only one working on machines for climate control back then. Half a century before him, Lord Kelvin, yes, that's Kelvin, drafted out the basic idea for a geothermal heat pump that, despite its name, could both heat and cool a space. 
Quoting Gizmodo, Kelvin envisioned a steam engine or other machine that evaporated or condensed liquid to generate heat or cooling. The air would be circulated to other locations through a cylinder while another cylinder pulled air from that location. His concept was never built, but it became the foundation for what was to come in the 20th century, including heat pumps that relied not on steam engines or coal, but another source of near-constant temperature, the ground. The upper 300 feet, or 91 meters or so, of the Earth's crust is a fairly constant temperature in the 50s. That makes it an ideal place to pump or dump heat depending on the season. A heat pump does this by running either a loop or a long straight run of pipe filled with antifreeze into the ground and connecting to a building where a pump inside blows over the coils and disperses the air. In the winter, it essentially pulls heat out of the air coming from the ground and blows it into your home. In the summer, the opposite happens. End quote. The lack of need for fossil fuels and lack of carbon emissions is a huge reason to look more into heat pumps, as several startups are doing, but Gizmodo also points out how great it would be to decrease the chance of explosion and carbon monoxide poisoning currently presented by how we heat our homes. And heat pumps run solely on electricity and are way more efficient than current fossil fuel forms of heating and cooling. Plus, some companies are even looking into ways to hook heat pumps up to solar panels on roofs. But where a heat pump wouldn't win the global cooling prize is the cost. They can be several thousand more dollars than a typical gas furnace up front, even if they'd save you money in the long term. An installation can also be costly and invasive, drilling super far into the Earth's surface, something that wouldn't necessarily even be possible in every living situation. But like so many other clean energy innovations, we've got to find a way to get over the hump of our best options being so expensive, and their price never going down because not enough people are choosing them because they're so expensive. Government subsidies or something of that sort could help. Scientific American points out that the only way we will ever break through on larger adoption of better solutions is with a combination of innovation, competition, and regulation. Fortunately, there are startups focused on bringing down costs, and similar to the Global Cooling Prize, on getting heat pumps installed in low-income buildings and neighborhoods. Quoting again from Gizmodo, An analysis from Rewiring America and the Center for American Progress put out in early June shows that a program that offers low-to-moderate-income households $6,500 and everyone else $5,000 in rebates on heat pumps could spur fairly rapid adoption and climate benefits. The cost would be $77.4 billion, but would save 112.5 million tons of carbon pollution, or a roughly 47% dip from the start of the decade. A report by the Sierra Club published last year mirrors those findings and shows the emissions reductions are equivalent to half the country giving up driving. End quote. That's pretty huge. And that kind of slash in emissions is desperately needed. We gotta be creative and equitable in how we do it, though. As another report from Rewiring America put it, quote, We simply won't solve climate change if we don't figure out how to help everyone afford the future. End quote. So Jeff Bezos, his brother Mark, and an anonymous person who paid $28 million in a charity auction will be going to space aboard Blue Origin's new Shepard rocket on July 20th. But today, they announced the fourth crew member, 82-year-old aviator Wally Funk, an original member of NASA's Mercury 13 Women in Space program. 
Mercury 13 was a program aimed at getting women included in the astronaut program at NASA. It had the agency's support, but no government funding. The women involved went through the same intense training and phase one testing as the Mercury 7, the first U.S. male astronauts. Their testing and training was done in secret, while the media lavished attention on the Mercury 7. A few women, including Funk, went on to Phase 2 and were about to complete Phase 3 when the program was abruptly cancelled. None of the women were ever made astronauts or went to space, and their story was obscured for several years. Even when they occasionally garnered media attention, usually in conjunction with fighting for acceptance into the astronaut program, or when the Soviet Union sent women into space decades ahead of us, they still remained in the shadows of the space program's history. There's a lot more that you can dig into here, and there is a great documentary on Netflix called Mercury 13, but given the history here and what she went through, it is just so incredible that Wally Funk will finally get to go to space. She was the youngest graduate of the Women in Space program and now will become the oldest person yet in space, a record she's taking away from John Glenn, who was one of the main opponents to putting women in space during the House committee hearings that followed the cancellation of the Mercury 13 program. So a nice little bit of irony there. Funk said, quote, They told me that I had done better and completed the work faster than any of the guys, so I got a hold of NASA four times. I said, I want to become an astronaut, but nobody would take me. I didn't think that I would ever get to go up. End quote. And quoting the Associated Press, Funk, who lives in Texas, was the first female inspector for the Federal Aviation Administration and the first female air safety investigator for the National Transportation Safety Board. In the announcement video posted to Jeff Bezos' Instagram, she said she has 19,600 flying hours and has taught more than 3,000 people to fly. End quote. So I think this is awesome. I mean, ever since watching For All Mankind on Apple TV Plus last year, I've been really fascinated by the Mercury 13. Their dreams were so unjustly dashed, so getting to see some of them actually be recruited by NASA in that alternate history TV series was really cool. And now seeing one of them go up for real is even better. But I'm also extra excited about one of the original Mercury 13 finally getting her chance to go to space for another reason. It turns out that Wally Funk is from my hometown. Probably the first person from Grapevine, Texas to go to space. I mean, maybe not actually because Texas, but still so cool, very exciting. And Funk said in that Instagram video, quote, Nothing has ever gotten in my way. They said, well, you're a girl, you can't do that. And I said, guess what? Doesn't matter what you are, you can still do it if you want to do it. And I like to do things that nobody has ever done. End quote. While the U.S. and China are getting most of the attention for their rovers on Mars, they're not the only nations with spacecraft studying the Red Planet right now. The United Arab Emirates currently has an orbiter there, the Hope Mars mission, and it just picked up some unprecedented observations of a certain nightside aurora on Mars that scientists have long tried to study. And the best part? It was basically an accident. The formal science mission of the probe hadn't even begun yet. The team was just testing its instruments and caught the aurora on their first set of nighttime data. Quoting Space.com, In February, Hope arrived at Mars, becoming the first interplanetary mission from the Arab world. By late March, mission staff slipped the spacecraft into a unique high orbit near the planet's equator that would give Hope's instruments a big-picture view of Mars. 
Mission scientists inspired by the history of Red Planet exploration and outstanding questions about the world had selected three instruments to gather observations about the atmosphere and weather of the Red Planet. Among those instruments is the Emirates Mars Ultraviolet Spectrometer, or EMUS, which is designed to study thin, vast halos of hydrogen and oxygen surrounding Mars to help scientists understand how those gases slip away from the planet into space, Hessa Almatrushi, the mission's science lead, told Space.com. Gathering that data requires a particularly sensitive instrument, and that's where the scientists got lucky and caught the aurora as well. Although the new observations are the most detailed to date of the discrete aurora, they don't elucidate precisely what charged particles are creating this effect, said Justin Dynam, a planetary scientist at the University of Colorado Boulder and deputy science lead for the HOPE mission. He suspects electrons are responsible, although those could be coming either from the sun or from Mars itself. What's more certain is that their energy is limited. We know they're not super energetic particles. They're sort of run-of-the-mill energetic particles, if you will, he said, end quote. And while the artist depictions of auroras on Mars look similar to what you'd see in Iceland, scientists say they aren't sure what a discrete aurora would look like to the human eye. Space.com notes that EMUS observes far ultraviolet light that's beyond what human eyes can process. It could burn us, but we might not actually be able to see it. So there could even be a ton of auroras on Mars that aren't actually visible to us. But all this talk of the visually striking, or not so much, auroras on Mars reminds me of the set of WPA-inspired posters that NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab designed a few years back. They're basically like mid-century modern kind of tourism posters for different planetary objects and intergalactic tours. They're really awesome looking and free to download and print out, so I will put a link to those in the show notes. So NPR launched something called the Joy Generator, and it's an interactive site that helps you tap into positive emotions, kind of walks you through the science of emotions and shifting perspective, and it gives you prompts, some that you experience on the site and others that it encourages you to go do offline. And as you'd expect from NPR, it's incredibly well designed and visually satisfying, just a cool thing to explore if you're kind of stressed out or even just bored. Link in the show notes. And that is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.